Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome everyone who's here in person or joining us online or listening to us or watching later as a recording. I appreciate everyone spending this evening with us on this important topic. As just mentioned, I'm Lenny Mendonca. I'm a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors and a senior partner emeritus and longtime participant in the McKinsey Global Institute at the at that firm. I'm also the former chief economic and business advisor to Governor Newsom for the state of California and your moderator for tonight. And it's my pleasure to welcome my friend Olivia White to the Commonwealth Club. Welcome back. Olivia just got off a plane from Paris, so she's taking a full 24-hour day to join us. So thank you, Olivia. She's a senior partner with McKinsey and Company in San Francisco and a director of the McKinsey Global Institute, the firm's business and economic research arm. She advises leading financial institutions and other global firms on a wide range of issues across strategy, growth, risk, and resilience. She has a lot of experience in scenario analysis, advanced analytic and modeling risk effectiveness and efficiency, as well as organizational performance. She uh, can't not mention her academic background because it's like, wow. She, um, prior to joining McKinsey, she was a Pappardello Fellow at MIT, where she conducted research in physics and neuroscience. She has a PhD in physics from Harvard, an MSc in math from Oxford, where she was a Rhodes Scholar, and bachelor's degree in physics and mathematics from Stanford. So if I were you, I wouldn't ask her any difficult technical questions tonight because I think she can handle it. But Olivia is a, a wonderful delight, and she's also the co-author of a relatively new report from McKinsey called Rekindling U.S. Productivity for the New Era, which is the general subject that we'll talk about tonight. So welcome, Olivia. It's great to see you again. Thanks, Lenny. It's a complete pleasure. So just a reminder, I know you... Uh, just heard, if you're with us in San Francisco, please turn off your cell phones. And if you have questions as we go along, please fill out the cards and I'll, I'll get to those as we move through the program. And if you're watching online, uh, put your questions on the text chat on YouTube and we'll get into questions later in the program. So with that, Olivia, uh, welcome and thanks for joining Thank us. You. So before we get into the, the substance of this, just tell us what the McKinsey Global Institute does and, and what you guys do and why. Well, it's sort of a question I should be asking <laughs> you, given the roots. But so uh, MGI is the is McKinsey's internal think tank, as it were, and it's um, a place where our mission is to aid with understanding and analysis of the things that are most important going on in the world. Um, we focus on things micro to macro. So really taking an understanding of what's going on in the ground at the business level and translating it up to things that are macro meaningful. A real focus and a historical focus is on productivity, though we also look at other topics linked to labor markets and future of work, technology, AI, um, global connections, global trade. And uh, all of this is really to the end of doing independent research that's relevant for decision makers in the world. And it's all public, or how, how do you actually do the work? So all of the work is done by a combination of a set of dedicated research-focused uh, partners at McKinsey, and uh, then supported by a number of uh, associates who we have, uh, engagement managers who come and do stints at, at 
the at the institute. Um, it's all funded by the partners of McKinsey, and we'll do pieces of research that typically last anywhere from nine months to a bit over a year um, to do real substantive uh, pieces that we put out into the world for free for everybody. Um, none of it's commissioned by clients. Okay. And why productivity? That's been a longstanding topic of McKinsey Goldman Institute. First of all, can you just, for the purposes of how you think about productivity and for the conversation tonight, just define it for us? And then why is that so important? Yeah. So I think about productivity as being how much one can get done, let's say just on the basis of labor, in a unit amount of time. So what's the output for every bit of, of work you put in? And so why productivity? It really is what drives the efficiency in uh, generation of economic output. It's extraordinarily important to growth. Um, it's exceedingly important to what individuals themselves are able to gain in the way they operate in the world. So wage growth, for example, um, cannot grow unless productivity is growing. And so it matters both at the broad sort of integrated macroeconomic level but also tremendously for the well-being of all individuals in uh, in an economy. And there's reasonably good uh, cross-sectoral, international data to be able to do that kind of comparison of the inputs and outputs for most sectors? And there is reasonably good. Now, we can talk about the reasons that it's tricky as well, but for the most part, yes. And I would say it's also particularly important to think about productivity growth so the rate of change over time, um, you can both compare countries' relative levels of, of output or of productivity uh, per unit input. Uh, you can also compare how quickly that's growing in different places. And that's, in fact, the more comparable measure because even if you have systematic differences in the way you measure it in one country versus another, as long as the systematic differences are constant over time, you can compare growth rates across countries. Um, and it's something that we look at across really the, the world. So we have this piece about the U.S. just out. We have a piece about Africa coming out soon, just as an example of really what you're talking about. Okay. And um, this work was called Rekindling U.S. Productivity, which by its title implies that it's not what it once was or yeah. needs to be faster. So tell us a little bit what, about the, the sense of where the U.S. is on this productivity journey. Well, I'll talk U.S. first, and then I'll give a little bit of comparison to the rest of the rest of the world. Um, if you look at U.S. productivity growth since the end of World War II until today, it grew at a rate of roughly two point two percent per year. And for those interested in the technicalities of it, I'm going to be quoting numbers that are business sector, non-farm. It's really business business productivity. For the past 15 years or so, it's been growing instead at 1.4% per year. Um, so a real far cry from what the sort of long-term productivity growth has been. And the other thing that's important about this is real, real wages. Um, if you look at real wage growth from roughly 1970 to roughly 1990, excuse me, from roughly the end of World War II to roughly 1970, um, real wage growth grew at just about the same rate as productivity, actually a little bit faster. Past 15 years, real wages in the U.S. have been growing at only roughly uh, 0.7% per year. So a lot slower 
and also not as quickly as productivity growth. So we really wanted to think about, okay, how do you rekindle productivity growth, but also make sure that there's more tethering to how much an average person increases their wages each year. So the difference between 2.2 and 1.4 doesn't sound very much if you're just talking about unit digits, but it actually is a pretty meaningful number at the scale of the economy, particularly if it's compounded over time. So is that a difference that we should care about and how, what should we be aspiring to get to? So what, we, what we've done to give people a number that's more, more tangible is to look at the hypothetical, I hope potential future of if we go from 1.4% uh, productivity growth per year to the long-term average of 2.2%, uh, what would that mean in additional cumulative GDP between now and 2030? That number is ten trillion. We calculate. So yeah, that's that's big. Um, that amounts at an individual household basis to about fifteen thousand dollars per household by twenty thirty. So you know that's roughly five times the vaunted stimulus check that we're told we're you know large and responsible for at least some of the injection of cash into the economy. So it's a it's it's a really meaningful amount of money. And in that time frame. So we're talking about over the next seven years or so. Yeah. Do you think it is plausible that we can increase productivity at that that level of increase in the United States? I think it is plausible. And one way to think about this is if you look at U.S. productivity from about 1995 to 2005, there's a history before this that we should go back to, too. uh, U.S. productivity grew at roughly 3.7%. Between 95 and 95 to 2005. Yeah. Per year. Yep. So you had, I told you the 2.2 average rate, but you, you had uh, really strong productivity growth coming off of World War II and then a period of eh, not, not, not so great, um, close to where we are now. Um, and then great productivity growth between about 1995 and 2005. So we really have done it before in the sense that we've gone from something that looked really pretty lackluster to really pumping on all cylinders. Um, One major reason that that happened was because a whole host of technologies that had come online, at least in some form, in the 80s and in the 90s, linked to things electrical, uh, really did begin to take hold at firms and help them boost their productivity. And so one thing we might hope, I think really quite reasonably, I think about AI in the title of, of our talk, is that some of the technologies we're seeing now, things that are digital, but perhaps we harness AI, generative AI, et cetera. And if we're able to do that in the way that we have in the relatively recent past, maybe this is a, a really achievable goal. So the period you described was 95 to 2005, yeah. but the technologies that you were talking about were developed in the 80s, you said, so it took a while for them to be ubiquitous and then businesses to adapt what they do. Is that what happened? Yeah, you know, there's this notion of a thing called a a J-curve, where the idea is that as technologies first are rolled out and firms try and incorporate them, uh, they sometimes don't grow productivity and sometimes they actually even become less productive. Um, and there's sort of great stories if you hearken way back to the invention of electricity. Um, firms started to put dynamos in place of where they'd had their gas furnaces. And well, that doesn't actually work all that well. And it certainly doesn't take advantage of the fact that electricity flows. 
And um, there was a period, in fact, if you go back that far, of 20, 30 years where people realized, wait, we actually have to revamp the way that we lay out the factory floor, the way that we run our processes. And once that started to happen, you got a real kick. Well, something reasonably similar happened between 1995 and 2005. Firms started to realize ways that they could actually revamp their processes and also train people on them. We're going to have to do the same sort of thing with, with new technologies coming online. So it was not just that that was growth in productivity and technology sector, but it was the application of that into broader portion of the economy that drove the real increase in that time? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So what happened after 2005 that caused the slowdown between then and now? Yeah, it's sort of a million-dollar question. I think it's a little hard to know exactly. I mean, I will say that I said 1995 to 2005, these numbers aren't exact. So the global financial crisis certainly didn't intervene. Um, it discouraged investment of a whole host of sorts over a period of time. So almost certainly that is a factor. But it may well also be that some of the benefits of technologies that had been adopted started to wear off and the new wave wasn't really taken up again um, as it might have been. Um, there are also broader macro trends associated with all of this where um, money, a lot of savings that we had really wasn't able to find productive investment um, or didn't go into productive investment, partially perhaps because people started to um, look at short timescale uh, returns and privilege those a little bit more. All of these factors are somewhat mixed up, um, but all contribute to that, to that uh, decline and then failure to really reignite until we hope now. Okay. And we've been talking, the numbers you've been talking about have been U.S. numbers, That's but right. this, it's um, obviously more of a global phenomenon today as we're interconnected in various ways with other economies. So is the phenomena that you're describing a generalized phenomena or is the U.S. in a different situation than other parts of the world? Well, it's a generalized phenomenon among developed nations. And in fact, um, in this regard, the U.S. is a little bit of a giant among dwarves. So uh, our productivity growth has actually been somewhat better than that of, if you take Italy or France or the UK or Canada, slightly better, not a lot. Um, what's not generalizable is that there are a whole set of Asian economies, China not least among them, obviously, where productivity has been growing very, very rapidly. Um, some other parts of the world, Latin America, uh, Africa productivity has not been growing fast. It's been growing in some regard moderately faster than in the U.S., but typically in economies like that where income is significantly lower and development is something you need to spark, you want productivity that's a lot higher. So you could say those are places that also have lagging productivity in some form of spirit. That's like what we're seeing here in another OECD na uh, nations. Yeah. Okay. And... Even in the U.S., U.S. is a big, complicated, diverse country with a lot of different geographies and different sectors. Um, one of the things that I thought was interesting in this report was how you disaggregated that productivity in the U.S. So tell us that story about what's what's the the overall numbers were 1.4, but what what's going on underneath that? A lot. Kind of, I was really kind of surprised by by some of this as we started to to really put it on the map. Um, you know, first thing to note is that there are only three states in the U.S., but maybe I should put it, there are three states in the U.S. that are growing at or at uh, or above that 2.2% long-term growth. So that's North Dakota, California, and, and Washington. 
North Dakota. I would have thought California and Washington maybe, but what's North Dakota story? Shale. Shale oil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And that's, you know, it's exceptional, actually. It's the one state where you can really point to a particular industry and pinpoint that as the reason for the particular performance. That's, un- that's unusual. Okay. Um, but so those are, those are the three that really stand out as being at this sort of target that we've set uh, in, in this paper. Um, but beyond that, there are seven states where productivity is growing above average, at above average rates and productivity level at that output we were talking about is above the average. Seven. 25 states below average on both. And then there's some that are either above average on one or above average on the other. But what that means is if you've got seven and 25, there's the set that are most productive and getting more productive and the set that's least productive and getting or lagging in their growth, so you're going to get a divergence. And so we have the fact, you know, the fact that you were talking about there's, there's some high performers, some low performers, and they're stretching out. And are there something underlying those seven or the, and the 25 that are lagging? Is there commonalities in those? Well, let me first tell you what's not the commonality because it was the thing that I thought would be and then, and then what is. Um, you might think that the commonality, we alluded to it when we were talking about North Dakota, you might think the commonality comes through, well, what sectors are they most sort of intensively focused on? So California, is it because of tech or um, Washington, is it because of tech? And you know, the answer seems to be no, not really. So if you look at California, for example, um, its most productive sectors and information technology in particular make up about 28% of its economy. And that's not terribly different from the overall mix among that group of, of 25 laggards, as I, as I described them. What is different is that the firms in individual sectors are more productive than the firms in those same sectors in some of the states that are lagging. And it seems that one powerful reason for that comes through cities that are successful and successfully bring together a sort of melting pot of ideas and workers and firms, um, sort of classic agglomeration effect of, of the city, and it's not always in a city proper, but in region, you know, think about the valley, um, where firms and workers come together and um, all boats, well, many boats, at least at a firm level, rise. So you alluded to the differences in regions as well. So is that as pronounced as the differences between states as who's advancing and has higher levels to begin with and those that are not or going the wrong direction? You know, it's something that we don't have evidence of in the same way. And I assume regions you're talking in a city. Yeah. yeah. So in at the city level, yes. And that's the thing I can really talk about. Um, What it looks like more regionally at, say, the county level in states, anecdotally, it's going to be the same, but I I don't have the same sort of numbers. But yeah, cities, there are basically eight cities in the U.S. that are by far the most productive and where the productivity growth has been highest. Um, Those include San Jose and San Francisco. It also includes L.A. It also includes um, San Diego, Um, Seattle, Houston, Boston, New York. I think that's roughly the group. Um, There's some that are significantly less uh, productive. I would say Miami, actually, is one of them. Less. Yeah, yeah. Um, And then there are a set of cities that at one point were real kind of superstars, but have basically stayed put. Um, A city like Detroit is an example. Cleveland 
um, Chicago, though Chicago is a slightly more mixed story. So yeah, you get the city as the locus of real productivity when it really hums. And that's very important at the sort of powering states, but being a city isn't, isn't enough. Mm -hmm. So you, you use the term agglomeration effect and yeah. kind of the intersection of not just one tech in particular sector, but across the different companies in that city or region. So to unpack that, what do you mean by what, what's agglomeration effect and what's going on there? Yeah. Well, what you have is a bunch of firms who come together who do things that are similar but not necessarily exactly the same. And part of what that means is that workers come and they want to be they want to be in those regions so that they can work with these firms. And that means that any given firm is able to compete itself for more workers. So you're able to both have more choice, but sort of more sorting and better matching between firm and worker. Another thing that happens is that you have actual honest to goodness interaction between firms. Some of that is direct sort of com competition, but some of it is just the fact that people interact with one another and get ideas that they might not otherwise have, either from firms that are doing similar things or firms that are in rather different fields, but where ideas uh, percolate. And ideas can percolate either in fairly simple ways. So, you know, how am I going to digitize my back end, right? But they can also percolate in ways that drive real more cutting edge innovation. And that's something that one sees, for example, in this region. Okay. And you mentioned that in both the states, but in particular in the cities, I think you said that the within sector differences in terms of company performance is more pronounced than the sectoral mix difference. Is that, did I get that right? You did get that right. And so here's an example where we have fixed numbers. In, in manufacturing, the top 10% of firms are 5.8 times more productive than the bottom 10% of firms. So that, you know, <laughs> translate productivity to, I don't know, an, a, a car, uh, a, uh, a, um, manufacturing line for for autos or any other any other uh um manufactured goods 5.8 times more you know somebody's putting out 10 and somebody's putting out two or less than two so it's a really enormous difference and in some fields actually so semiconductors subsector of manufacturing the semiconductor manufacturing 38 times um now, there's a sort of caveat here, which is that you have to choose how to group things, and some firms within that grouping are actually doing really rather different things. So some of that's the reason, but an awful lot of it is that some firms have just figured out how to do it in better and more productive ways, um, and these agglomerations can help. And so, I mean, is it one way to describe, link the last two things you described, is that you have high-performing companies in of geography and they are interacting with other companies and other employers and other workers and learning from each other and it kind of builds on is that what's going on part of what's going on yeah for sure um what i didn't mention though is that you also have at least in the initial days a consumer base that you can test and innovate on in a way that you might not if you were in a place that was smaller and had less had fewer people and fewer people who are accustomed to new things coming out Okay. Um, so that that also plays a role. So I guess at one level, at least sitting in this part of the world, you wouldn't be surprised that San Francisco and San Jose and Boston and Seattle, New York are on that list. Um, but you mentioned some other, you know, fast growing or Houston even. Houston, to, Houston, yeah. But um, Miami's not on that list. 
Um, are there what, what what if there are places that should be higher performing, but given the population, um, you know, movements and and yeah. even just the buzz around them that are not what's going on there. Well, look, some of what may be going on is that I'm giving you long-term numbers. I went from about 2010 to, in some cases, 2008 until 2019. So, you know, maybe Miami gets a pass because they didn't get to take take uh, credit for the past couple of years. But in many of these places, you actually don't have as broad-based a set of firms that are really productively putting things out. So it's one thing for a place to be exciting and buzzy for people to move to. It's another thing to really have some of this embedded in the fabric of of the city. Okay. And are there examples of cities or even states that have um, moved from good to great in the time frame you're talking about or, or accelerated their productivity? Are there particular things that stand out as here's an example of somebody actually has moved the needle? Well, there's both a set of firms that have accelerated just extraordinarily from good to great. And then there's some that have accelerated from mediocre to very good. Um, good to great San Jose. Um, San Jose is the fast city that had fastest growing productivity by actually quite some margin. Um, Washington also falls, excuse me, Seattle also falls within that, within that category. Uh, Houston is a city that moved from not, you know, fine to really quite strong. Um, and what, what happened there? I suspect people here will know more about San Jose and perhaps, Seattle yeah. than Houston. Yeah. Expansion of a variety of different industries. Um, wholesale trade was big. Um, certain forms of advanced manufacturing. So it's not just a, it's not just an energy-driven phenomenon. Okay. Um, also has really profited from being on a road that's important for, for trade with, with Mexico. Um, and lots of influx of people from a variety of parts of the world, high, high-skill people from a variety of different parts of the world. And that is not super dissimilar, at least in broad contours, from uh, San Jose. Okay. And as you look forward, um, you know, the answer isn't, try and be San Jose or Seattle or anyplace else. Every region has its own distinctiveness. But what, what are you, what are, what are the types of things that you think are more generalizable about moving from 1.4 to 2.2 that we ought to be paying attention to? Yeah, well, let me, let me talk sort of broadly and then maybe we take it to the place level. I'm okay. curious too here, you know, your, your experience in California. Um, so, Look, one thing that's extraordinarily important is that all of this ultimately really is coming at the firm level. So features that make firms more productive are ultimately going to make a region more productive, Um, which means that firms themselves really do need to be thinking about what do they do to be more productive. This is not just cutting costs. It doesn't boost your output. Um, And then there are ways that uh, cities can help firms, cities or other regions can help firms settle in um, more effectively. For all of this human capital, the labor force is extraordinarily important. Um, So what are things that both firms and geographies can do to help make sure that people are trained? What are things that they can do to help foster a labor force that's not hired on the basis of degrees? or credentials, but is hired on the basis of either skills or the propensity to be able to learn skills that matter, because that vastly expands the set of talent from which you can draw. Um, it's not a sort of pinpointed elite group, but but a broader set. And that's 
ever more important as technology goes quickly, because even if you have been credentialed or have taught, been taught something specific, maybe those skills aren't so so important anymore. And that's something that both firms and individual areas can do. Um, another thing that's really important is, you know, hearkening back to our conversation about technology beyond the uh, beyond the workforce that needs to be educated to use new technologies, is encouragement in innovation. And then the investment that is needed in order for that innovation to take root. So think about the dynamo that we talked about. So you actually willing to put up front the investment that may take a little bit of time to really pay, to really pay, uh, to pay fruit. Okay. And I want to come back to some of the regional differences. Yeah. In this, but, um, you know, we, the title of today was talking about in the age of AI. Yeah. And at least in this part of the world, you can't go to a, cocktail party or listen to a podcast without somebody talking about the yeah. new AI thing that they're into, um, either for better or like it's dystopian. But um, how does the onset of a next generation of artificial intelligence influence your views about the opportunities for productivity growth and what we need to make sure that we're getting the good parts out of it with, without uh, getting into bad things. Yeah, well, I mean, let's talk just about the sort of nuts and bolts of the good things, because yeah, how do you not get to the bad things becomes a somewhat trickier and different conversation. But um, yeah, I would say ov overall, it was optimistic in a sort of muted, muted way. Because um, the fact is, there have been a lot of techno technological innovations over history from, you know, before the steam engine to the steam engine and on. And a lot of these have been greeted as, you know, death of jobs foretold. And the fact of the matter is always it's been the case that there are a whole set of jobs or activities that are demised, but a whole set of new ones that spring up in their place. And this is something that we look at actually relatively regularly, as do others, to make projections about, well, which jobs, at least in the near term, look most vulnerable to new technology. You can ask this about automation, too, just basic automation. And where does one think that there may be new jobs that are demanded in order for the technology to, to persist? And AI, like automation before it, is a case where it does look as if, at the aggregate level, fewer jobs will be demised than new ones Excuse me, fewer will be demised than the new ones created. So it's sort of net, it may not be a bad thing at all for a number of jobs. Now, for productivity itself, all sorts of reasons to believe that people can be more productive, particularly in certain kinds of tasks, um, using AI. Uh, so think about writing code or marketing or the chat bot. And if that chat bot when you called wasn't that annoying lady, um, with, who, who never quite knew what the answer to your question, you know, really knew what you're asking, but was was as good as having an actual human on the other side. Um, a lot of things that can be done faster. Um, and in many instances, with the right form of human supervision, better. And so there is reason to think, okay, actually, we may indeed be able to get some job growth together with, in certain forms of tasks, some real meaningful increments in productivity itself per sort of human labor hour. So that's why to be optimistic. Now, what about downsides? Um, and I'll just talk about them from a sort of jobs and productivity perspective, because you know, there's a bunch of stuff that 
I could opine on, but I don't, right. don't, don't know, um, without, without real knowledge. Um, but from the productivity side, um, those jobs that are demised are not in the same places as where jobs will be created. And um, part of what that means is that you have parts of the country where jobs will be more vulnerable to automation, and I'll say particularly automation in certain parts of AI. And what that means is that workers in those parts of the country may actually struggle um, to get new work if they're not moving. And in fact, mobility has generally been going down in the U.S. over the past years. So that is a real sort of open question. Um, and how are we going to be able to adjust? Okay. And as you... I know you've got more work underway on AI that yeah. is still in process, so um, don't want to pre-announce things that you're yeah. still working on. But as you um, think about the application and implications of AI, does it feel like something that is as broadly applicable as prior technologies that you mentioned that had real disruptive effects and substantial changes in productivity, or is this all just hype from the latest wave of what's going into venture capital investment? Well, look, AI is an awfully broad term. Um, and in some form, to the degree what we're talking about is something, if we're talking about what can replace what's going on up here for all of us, well, then sure, it's, it's, it's broad. If you think about generative AI as it stands right now, um, it's broader based in an important sense in that it's not just specific jobs, um, but all jobs that most people do have some elements that might be replaceable by um, AI, um, regenerative AI. Uh, it's less broad-based, I suppose, in the sense that it's particularly knowledge, but this is different, but less broad-based in the sense that it's particularly knowledge-based forms of job and task, um, and not uh, not uh, labor, you know, use your arms, use your, use your hands type of work. Um, it's interestingly a different kind of thing to look at in that um, it's specific, you know, the steam engine replaces a whole host, automobile replaces a whole host of jobs fully cut, full, full jobs versus, oh, well, it's this particular 5% or this particular 10%, this particular 20% of what you do. It's your email writing or this, these particular you know, I'm a consultant slides one needs to make. Um, so it's it's a sort of more subtle and nuanced way that it may carve out activities people undertake. So how do we how do you think about the implications of that? Because at one level you said there there may be in prior technologies there were some types of jobs that were created in one geography and then jobs that were destroyed in a different geography. But if you're talking about everyone changing their job by five or twenty percent, how do we deal with that? What does that mean for how do they, um, you know, how do we ensure that there productivity growth that there is and that the gains for that get shared, that it's not just, you know, you got to work 25% harder now. Or 25% less hard. But it, at any rate, the, the, uh, which, I mean, I say that a little unjust, but no, not, not necessarily. Um, yeah, like part of it is I suspect we'll find things to replace what's being replaced. I mean, that's, that's a really important component of it. But some of the things that we're doing, we'll do more efficiently. Um, another you've got another uh, sort of factor in all of this is that, um, yeah, I mean, maybe that's just that the, it's not so clear that 
this is just good. It means that we'll sort of compress all of these 10 and 20 percents together into fewer people. Now, there are certain forms of job that may disappear altogether, despite what I what I was saying, right? So certain sorts of call center jobs, you might just need managers who are dealing with particularly difficult situations, for example. Okay. And, and this is an unfair question, um, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because someone asked it. So um, if you look in your crystal ball, where where do you think the opportunities, either industries or types of jobs that AI might create or that are opportunities going forward as a result of the application of that technology? What gets you excited about it? Oh, excited. excited. You threw in a twist. I mean, look, there are all sorts of jobs associated with the actual processing of the data that needs to be used in order for these um, for these models to be trained and to work. Um, so that's an example of on one hand. On the other hand, it frees up humans to do a whole host of higher level, spend more time on higher level, more judgmental or more um, human interaction based tasks. So something to get excited about there is not my being able to see in a crystal ball exactly what other jobs people will have that are different from today, but just to take and at least, you know, maybe with limited imagination to take and conjure the jobs that we have today and extract the hardest and the more more interesting and more human parts of them, and could we concentrate the time that we spend on on those things? Okay, so as the best of automation um, reduce the amount of physically intensive, demanding, uninteresting work, you're saying AI may do the same thing to components of knowledge work that the time freed up. It's up to your, our all imagination about how do we use that time more productively or or get home earlier to spend more time with your family. Yeah, if we look at it from the optimistic point of view, absolutely. Okay. So I have a, a couple questions, and, and you'd mentioned, and we didn't, I didn't really um, get into it yet, but that in addition to the slowdown in growth that happened um, post-2005, there was more of a divergence between productivity and wage growth in that time yeah. period as well. Is that also true within states and within... Um, cities as well, and what's going on there? Yeah, I mean, there's but so in the general case, yes. Um, but the other thing that's happening, of course, is that there's, I mean, there's significantly more in-country inequality than there has been, and that goes down to sort of more um, compact units of geography as 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 well. So you've got a sort of broader decoupling between wage growth and productivity growth, but also broader variance in what that wage growth looks like depending on the professions that people are in. Um, so people in professions where indeed productivity has been growing fastest uh, represent a lower fraction of employment, but they're far better paid. So take the information sector, which includes software, media, tech, um, take finance, um, these people are much better paid. Wage growth is is much higher versus um, some areas that where productivity sectors where productivity is growing slower and is lower. So food service, retail trade, um, so selling goods at the corner store, for example. And these are areas where um, productivity is lower, wage growth is more decoupled, and it's 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 slow. Okay. And are there big sectors of the economy that um, are those you mentioned a couple that are pretty big? So retail trade and, yeah. and um, service jobs, some types of service jobs, construction. Are there other sectors that have had challenged productivity growth in the last while that are concerning? Well, yeah, I mean, I'll call I'll call out a, a couple. Um, 
three. So one one is manufacturing, which is a really mixed bag, but it's still the largest sector in the U.S., both in terms of employment and in terms of total output. Um, still has above average productivity, but that productivity is growing very slowly. Um, a second is real, excuse me, is, uh, yeah, it's construction, which is slow growing and low productivity. Um, and then a third, a really tr tricky one is, is healthcare, which also is just at the cusp of this slow growing and, and, um, low, relatively lower productivity bucket. Uh, and there's a whole host of things that I'm not, you know, probably not, not worth going into now, but it's, it's a really fraught one in the U.S. and one where actually measuring productivity is particularly, uh, difficult just because what you're trying to get out is something that's hard to, it's not just going to be something you can measure in sheer dollars and cents. The quality of healthcare matters tremendously. And so lots of measurement issues. Um, but even that difficulty aside, um, we have real problems with healthcare productivity. Okay. Um, you had mentioned that there were um, big differences by cities. Yeah. And as you've been out talking about this report, how how are different um, region cities, states reacting to the to the results? So I will tell you, whenever you go and you talk about this anywhere that's not in California, people say, well, I thought that San Francisco was doing terribly badly. Why is it at the top? Um, people are surprised. People then do say, well, you know, Boston, that's not surprising. New York, that's not surprising. Um, and the thing I'm just talking about, San Francisco, that's a recency effect, but it, yeah. but it, but it's real people. I mean, you picked up on Miami. So what's, what's going on with Miami and Orlando's another one that's not doing particularly well, according to our measures. People are surprised about that. Um, folks that live in cities that are doing fine, um, and improving a little bit, like take Atlanta, they, they kind of see themselves there. That's what they expect. Um, People in in Midwest, there are a bunch of cities there that are. And I think mentioned Detroit a little bit earlier. Again, people not super surprised. So, um, but I think the thing that does surprise people is just the degree to which the cities that I rattled off, the most productive ones, are have stepped away. That that surprises folks. Okay, and I know this is a, your comment about the recency effect, but um, had a question on. We can't have a discussion in San Francisco without talking about what's happened to. San Francisco in the last little while right. around remote work and housing challenges and other, you know, tourism, et cetera. So how, how, if you were looking at this now, would you have a different view on San Francisco or, and how does that going to play out? Not at the level of what we've been talking about. Yeah. Not at the level of what we've been talking about. These things move slowly and there's a lot of, there's a lot of money and activity flowing into San Francisco as a metropolitan area still. I mean, clean tech is going to be good for the city, at least in the near term, as, as just one example, um, generative AI. Uh, but what one I think does need to think about is to what degree are some of the over, I mean, one thing we haven't talked about is you can have at, on the one hand, a city that overall is doing tremendously well, but also has huge number of problems with inequality and poverty, et cetera. And that's the sort of thing we probably need to guard against more than worrying that the productivity at the high level is going to fall off a cliff anytime soon. Okay. And did you, were there, were there any insights as you looked into the different um, cities or even states in terms of those that were good at both a level and, in, and ideally increasing productivity, but also 
moving in the right direction on inequality or are those like all the ones that are getting more productive or getting more unequal? I'm going to, I don't know. Like, honestly, okay. that's, uh, but there certainly are, what I can say is there certainly are discrepancies, but is it, you know, exactly what does the correlation look like? I, I don't know now. I would okay. like to. I think it's an okay. important question. Um, and as you have talked to um, business leaders yeah. about this work, um, they're obviously in the business of running a business and thinking about what this might mean for them. What what intrigues them and what, what do they think about that may have implications for their leadership? Well, so one is this number of the most productive firms being 5.8 times more productive than the least productive. That really perks people's ears up. And the fact that that's not really just the same thing as cuts. Another is um, the fact that there was this past upsurge that we talked about from 1995 to 2005 when firms at a broad level started to figure out how to really embed technology into what they're doing. So people are interested in, okay, well, how can I embed technology in what I'm doing right now? And the thing you hear really frequently is, I've spent so much money on digitizing. And I just still kind of kludgy and a pain. It doesn't, you know, I hadn't paid off. Um, so people really are intrigued to talk about, okay, well, what should I have done differently? Can I do something differently there? And there's some nice, I mean, look at the sector level, there's some great examples. The sectors that are most productive are um, with reasonably strong correlation, the sectors that have adopted digital most strongly. And people see that and they say, okay, well, look, maybe that's some evidence that if I do it right, I readjust my processes, I train my people, et cetera, the chances that I become more productive um, are, are higher. Right. Because to get to the from 1.4 back to 2 plus, it's not just going to be the technology sector continuing to outpace. It has to be implication and application in a broader swath of sectors, right? Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, I mean, technology is a reasonably important sector, but we got to get wholesale trade, manufacturing, retail trade really growing much faster than they are today. I mean, no, no question. And if we think back on the, the wage part of the conversation, um, the sectors that are the most productive today are disproportionately uh, less important as employers. And some of that's because they're sort of the victims, or from a societal perspective, they're the victims of their own success. They're more productive. They don't need as many people. So we need to figure out ways of boosting productivity of the larger employers, even if, or product, the productivity growth of the larger employers, even if on a level basis, they'll always be slightly less productive than, say, an information sector. Okay. Um, the You had mentioned that you also are um, have a set of things that you think policymakers should be doing as a result of these findings? What What's on your list and what are people asking you about? Well, when you think about the differences in productivity by state, by city, and then you notice levels of inequality, it's just really obvious that you have to think about what you can do at the place-based level. So place-based policies don't have a great history of success. On the other hand, it's a little tricky to see how we get from where we are to a place that we want to be unless we figure out how to target individual areas a little bit better. So that's absolutely an area of a lot of things, and I know something you've thought a lot about. Yeah. Um, it is. Unfortunately, a lot of the history of that kind of yep. investment has not been um, you know, extremely effective, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be trying new ways to do it. And the amount of money that the federal government has coming in through the variety of packages that were passed in the last while between 
um, infrastructure investment, broadband, more generally industrial support, particularly in things like semiconductors. There's a lot of money flowing out and making sure that's used in a way which actually improves productivity, but also addresses the issues around uh, inequality and lack of inclusive economic growth matters a lot. And then there's an enormous investment that is underway and a lot more that's going to be necessary to deal with climate change as well. And so thinking about how we integrate those at a at a regional level and, and at a state level, if it's a moderately sized state, is really important. Um, otherwise, we will just spend a lot of money and end up with some of the same challenges. Yeah. Yeah, no, that very much makes sense. And I guess some of this ties in also to some of what we were talking about earlier with respect to education and upskilling. Um, and we've got to figure out how to be able to do that no matter where somebody no, is in the No country. question. Yeah. You, know, yeah. you can't have a, one conversation around business and economic growth and a completely separate table that's talking about the workforce. They need to be, yeah. and, and higher ed is part of that, not just higher ed, but higher ed is an important part. Um, are there, you talked about the differences between the 5.8 difference between the most productive and least productive. Is that just scale? Are those just bigger companies relative to the smaller ones? Or is there something very different about who they are? It's not just. So some of it is scale. Yeah, some of it is scale. But it's definitely not just scale. It's like honest to goodness, just the way that they operate. And the yeah, the big and not even huge firms, but mid-sized firms in, in California, for example, in technology, just much, much more productive than those in other parts of the country. And and so how does that manifest itself? It's revenue per employee or, and then if they're making more per person, they ought to have higher PEs and things like that. So is that what's going on? It's yeah. all that? Yeah. 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 Um, and I mean, you see it in cost structures um, just directly. Um, you're, able, you're able to do do more with less. Um, so no, I mean, nothing, nothing at the top level that's super surprising, but it really does have to do with the way in which various different processes are, are structured and the way, I mean, there's a lot of these, the, the firms that are the best performers and, um, on a regular basis, the best performers also do a whole set of things to help develop their people in ways that other firms don't. So to help um, career path and train on the job so that they're able to continue to push their workforce um, rather than okay. s- sitting in stasis. Yeah. And how about at the other end, the least productive firms? They're At some level, they have to be competing against those higher productive firms. So how are they still existing and what's going on there? Big economic mystery. Yeah, I mean, it's really very unclear why you, I mean, economic theory, basic economic theory would say that the biggest, most productive firms would compete away the um, the smaller ones that couldn't keep up. Now, sh- surely some of that has to do with place pl- location. Now, mm-hmm. if you're selling into a market that's not entirely sort of global or tradable, well, then, um, and the workforce that you're drawing from is local, well, then maybe you're not going to be competed away. But um, if that's the main reason, that's troubling because that means those geographies are only going to continue to decline relative to those that are fast growing because you're it's not just that companies everybody else they're competing against and what they're getting well look one thing that's entirely conjectural but when you notice what i just what we were just talking about and then you notice the fact that you have some states and some areas that are both above average in their productivity and their productivity is going faster and others that are below average and productivity is going slower that sort of dispersion effect is at least consistent with some of what you're some mm-hmm. of what you're raising. And it's surely not the only explanation, but that's that's part of what's going on. Hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. So um 
as I want to preview some of what you're working on now. So what, what else is on MGI's list of things that they think are interesting that are you're exploring? Well, can I uh, we had a new piece that came out today yes. that sort of read so it's a, it's a quick a, a, a short follow a quick time a quick follow uh, post Great. view right um, yeah we just came out with a piece that looks at what um, the macro economy might look like over a ten year period so we say and this links to productivity we say over the past twenty years um, actually the uh, global economy produced what we estimate to be about 160 trillion with a T in paper wealth. So accretion of wealth that was driven largely by investment in existing assets, which bidded up things like real estate prices and equities, but not in investment in productive assets. And what's happened over the past couple of years has thrown the macro economy into a bunch of turmoil. And we say, okay, well, where are we going over the next 10 years? Are we going back to the sort of behavioral pattern that we had, which was good for some people, um, but was associated with lagging productivity and at least within various different countries, U.S. great example, increase in in-country inequality? Or are there other potential futures? And we explore some of what uh, those might be, some of which are not great, um, one is a sort of higher for longer, maybe 1970s-esque type higher inflation, but medium growth scenario. Another is a what we call a balance sheet reset. Think um, Japan in the 1990s, which is not a nice situation. But there's also a productivity accelerate scenario, which is a little bit more akin to some of what we explored in the rekindling productivity in the U.S. Um, so that, that's, we think so that's important. Let's try and link that work yeah. to what we've been talking about Um is it too simplistic to say, given the financialization and the increase in asset prices, that if we don't have productivity growth in the next decade, the outcomes for global economic performance and particularly those who are not um, benefited from this last while is pretty pretty ugly? Pretty grim, yeah. So we better have that damn Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, so look forward to digging into that and hopefully having a, another conversation on that work. So what else are you, uh, what else are you guys thinking about? Got another piece coming out on real estate and link this real estate in major, in major cities globally, San Francisco, one of them. And I won't preview the, this will, this will come out in July. Talking about commercial real estate or residential or both? Uh, so office, residential and uh, retail. So okay. not all commercial, but you know the off the office and the multifamily through the residential and, and retail. So quite a lot of it. Okay. So like, what's the conversation in San Francisco right now? Yeah, that's that's all in there. Okay, great. When will that be out? End of July. Can't wait. Sorry. Okay. June. It's May. Mm. Yeah. yeah it's next June. month. So it's, yeah, so you're it's already, a, yeah. You're already largely done. You're getting ready to get it out. Okay, good. What else? Peace on Africa. That's coming out next week, actually, and that's very much focused on productivity. Um, and we look at some of similar kinds of questions about um, what's happening in different countries. And one of the main theses here is you can look at Africa as a continent at large, but you can also sort of what we've been spirit of what we've been talking about. You look at individual countries and the story is actually really quite variable by individual country and individual city. And what does that mean? Okay, great. That's not as much attention on Africa as there should be, given its importance great. in the global economy. Yeah. And no, exactly. Potential for growth. 
and the world right now, and as we think about the the um, energy transition, mm-hmm. what role it'll play. Yeah, no, it's a very important piece. Okay. Um, anything else that you want to mention? That- that I want to mention? There's a piece coming out on AI specifically, um, and generative AI, that's coming out um, in about a month. So okay. it's another one, and a link to at least some of the things we touched on today. Okay. So I think those are... Sounds like a very rich agenda. It's, so, been, it's fun, yeah. Um, so we've, we're coming about to the end of the time, and I've had appreciate the questions that have come in in the last while. I want to use the last little bit to just kind of have you give your own perspective. Not you don't have to say this is the McKinsey Global Institute perspective, but you've looked a lot at the economy. You looked a lot yeah. at what's driving it. Um, how do you? What's your general mood? Not like tomorrow's stock market or the debt ceiling debate, but if you look out the fiber. 10 years that you're talking about. What, what's your mindset about this? How are you feeling about things? So you're asking me this after I've been up for 24 hours. So I've been, you know, <laughs> oh, asking exactly. maybe more positive. <laughs> there should have been a couple of drinks. It's probably a better conversation. <laughs> right, exactly. Look, I think there's reason to be cautiously optimistic, but there are a whole host of really pretty formidable downsides that we have to be sort of very much vigilant against. So I, yeah, I mean, I still do gain in my, you know, my own, my own view. I do gain, I do uh, guard sort of cautious optimism, but, I am worried about um, both what do we do with growing inequality and are we going to figure out a solution that gets us to a place where um, incomes are high enough among people who are not working in a particular set of sectors or who have wealth that can grow. Yeah, I worry about that a lot. Um, I worry about what role connections between countries is, you know, what, in what direction are we going? Okay, so um, this is something that's surely linked to um, some of what's happened in the U.S. On the other hand, connections between different countries in the world has also generated enormous amount of opportunity and growth, and there are tweaks that one can make, but you could also do a whole lot more than just a tweak and go in a bad direction. So these are examples of some of the things that I do. I do worry about, despite the cautious optimism along okay. the lines of what we've been talking about. Okay. And just as a closing um, comment before asking if there's anything else that I haven't asked you or should have asked you, um, what what are the two or three things that you are paying attention to to have you um, think that we are being, should be more optimistic or you're more concerned? What do you really, what's the stuff you pay attention to? Yeah. So maybe linking a little bit to what we were just talking about, the most recent piece that just came out today, um, there are a set of questions associated with are we saving or are we spending that are really important. And one thing I'm looking at and really uncertain about what's going to happen is as people are getting older, are we going to see an increase or a decrease in spending? I think like a really fundamentally unknown question, but a really important one. Um, Where are we investing? Are we actually investing in things that have long enough time windows, time horizons, that um, we're likely to be able to get the sort of longer-term productivity gains that we need? So that's another thing, just sort of distribution of investment capital. Um, That extends then to questions about investment in uh, clean energy technologies. Another thing that you asked what we're working on, uh, this is now going to be coming out in probably end of year, maybe beginning of next year, we've started work on around adaptation. And that's something I'm spending a lot of time thinking about. Um, so 
clearly a lot of climate change is upon us and we're going to need to be able to react. Um, We need to be able to react here. We've had to react here in the past couple months, you know, past year, but also in the developing world. So we talked about Africa and I'm thinking about that quite a lot as well. Well, that's a good, rich set of things to be paying attention to. And um, I I personally share your cautious optimism, um, but it's not going to happen without concerted effort on all those things that you're talking about. And a lot of that happens at the company level, but policy matters as well to make sure that we get that right so that we do encourage more investment and long-term productivity, that we do have the right savings and investment levels so that we can pay for our our commitments to our elder population and not just on the backs of the future generations, and that we deal with the urgency and reality of climate change and its effects, as well as um, ensure that our outcomes are much more equitably distributed than we have today. So there's no small set of things to be paying attention to. No, that's right. And nobody can be a spectator in it. Great. Well, anything I didn't ask you as a closing thoughts that you have on this work, other than saying it's been 18 hours and I want to get some sleep? You asked me everything. Yeah, no, so, no I, nothing, nothing major. It's been really fun. Okay. Well, um, again, our thanks to Olivia White, a senior partner and a director at the McKinsey Global Institute, um, for joining us this evening, particularly after that long day. And it would have never known if you hadn't told me, given how, how on every question you were. So thank you for the work you're doing, and thank you for spending the time with us. And if you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club, please visit us at commonwealthclub.org slash events. So thank you, everyone, and have a great evening. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.